So, first of all, can you just say your name and what your title is? Yes, I'm Cathy Gresswell. I'm a Professor of Developmental Clinical Psychology. Lovely. And first of all, just tell me a little bit about yourself. So, starting from when you first got interested in the subject yep. to how you got to be where you are now. Yeah, so um, my background's in clinical psychology. So, I did a psychology degree here in Oxford. Um, and then, after getting some experience, trained as a clinical psychologist. And during my training, I became really interested in child and adolescent mental health and spent um, yeah, a year of the three year course working with children, young people, and families. And when I finished the clinical psychology training, qualified as a clinical psychologist, I was really keen to uh, work with children and families, but also I was very driven to continue doing research, uh, not just clinical work, because there you know, are quite large gaps in our understanding about what we need to be doing to get the best outcomes for children and young people. So from there, I did a PhD after my clinical training, um, which focused on anxiety problems in children. Um, and I've very much carried on in that area. And that's that continues to be the main focus of most of my work. Mm. And when did you come here to your present post? So I came here to Oxford three years ago. Mm-hmm. So it feels like yesterday because we've obviously had two years of pandemic in, in those three years. So I still very much feel like a new person. But so, yeah, I came here, here three years ago. So what... Uh, how much of a problem is anxiety for children? Yeah, well, so anxiety problems are, are probably the most common emotional problems that, that children, well, that, that anyone experiences across the lifespan. And uh, and so actually it's thought that about um, 25% of people will experience significant problems with anxiety at some point in their life. And actually for um, most of those people, those problems will first emerge sometime during childhood and adolescence. And some studies have estimated that the the median age of onset of anxiety problems is 11. So that means half of everyone who will have an anxiety problem in their life will first have those problems before they leave primary school. Um, And international studies that have collated data suggest that at any one time, um, probably about 6 or 7% of children will have a significant problem with anxiety. So a level of anxiety that's causing problems in their day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. I wonder how you define that, because, I mean, we all get anxious. Yes. And anxiousness must be a... It's a normal reaction yep. to uncertainty. Yeah. Um, so where do you decide that anxiety has actually become a problem? Yeah, for yeah, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Obviously, we all have fears and worries and anxiety about things. But when we're talking about anxiety problems, it's really where the anxiety persists so longer than, um, you know, so it's not specific to one very particular situation. Um, and it's out of proportion to the threat that, uh, that they're experiencing in their life. But also, critically, that it is causing interference and impairment on a day-to-day basis so uh, that might be for children commonly that might be problems like for example attending school or getting to school on time being able to participate at school be able to um, do sort of age appropriate activities and also there can be huge sort of difficulties that families have to manage often um, can be enormous problems with eating with sleeping um, and uh, also just becoming very um, distressed on a, on a regular basis which is obviously difficult for for the child and also their their family around them so it's usually the family who become concerned and might approach uh, services for help yes that's right so we i mean we do a lot of work with um, pre-adolescent children so there it, it almost always is the, the families who seek help and actually interestingly with adolescents we found the same that where young people do manage to reach services often is because it, uh, members of the family have been able to really help push that forwards mm-hmm. So what are some of the projects that you've set up since you've been here yep. uh, to try and address that? Yeah, so um, so non-COVID projects. Non-COVID, or, no, we'll yes. COVID later. Sorry, okay. we're doing... We're in a lovely sunlit world where COVID doesn't right. exist at the moment. Yeah, so we've we've got a number of projects that are going on, focusing on anxiety um, in children that are focused on um, prevention and early intervention, particularly. So one of the things that um, we found previously is that, um, but probably isn't a surprise to anyone, is that very few children with anxiety problems actually access evidence-based psychological therapies and there are lots of barriers to that come along at different stages you know in this sort of from realizing there's a problem to to actually being able to get some help that we've tried to address in a number of ways um, and one of the ways is by um, developing brief interventions where we can kind of empower parents to be able to help their children in their day-to-day lives and that way you can fit around busy family lives um, but also we can deliver treatments quite efficiently 
from a health service perspective as well. Does this bypass child and adolescent mental health services completely or does it go through them? Yeah, it goes, I, I goes, we're reading in the papers every day at the moment about how completely it goes yeah. through So the, the interventions that we tend to deliver do come with therapist support because when you're working with families where children do have uh, having problems and things are interfering you know the studies generally find that having some level of therapy support is really important um to to get good outcomes so we we our studies do involve delivering interventions that have therapy support but what we're trying to do more and more is deliver develop interventions that can be delivered by sort of non not highly specialist practitioners um so for example in recent years there's been an initiative to um increase the mental health provision that's directly accessible through schools um, and so we're working with lots of those teams to make sure that the practitioners that work in those teams um, are able to deliver interventions that work so that when families are first concerned they get access to to good quality treatment um, that can fit around their lives. So we've got a few studies. We've got um, a trial a program of work called ICATS, Identifying Child Anxiety Through Schools, which is all about improving our identification of anxiety problems, but we've then also developed a kind of pathway from identification, feedback, and then offering an online intervention to parents to support them. And we're currently doing quite a large randomised controlled trial to look at whether we can reduce the number of children who have um, anxiety problems through that early screening and intervention. We have another trial called My Cats, minimising young children's anxiety through schools, which was with younger children in Key Stage 1, where we identify children who might be at risk of anxiety problems. And again, we support parents to try and prevent the development of anxiety disorders. But we also have a study which is, is more delivered through services, again, of, of an online intervention for parents, where we're doing a randomised controlled trial to see whether this brief online intervention for parents, whether we can get as good outcomes as would normally be achieved through what child and adolescent mental health services would usually do, which would generally be sort of a more uh, intensive, more um, potentially more expensive treatment. So mm -hmm. if we can get good outcomes, but with less, um, less demands on both parents and services, then obviously that means more people can access good treatments. So lots of different trials going mm -hmm. on. There are lots of other projects going on around the edges, but those are some of the, the larger ones mm -hmm. that are going on at the moment. Well, tell me a bit more about the intervention. What's its... Um it's evidence-based, like, and it's, yeah. and it's a lot philosophical yep. um, yeah. approach. Yeah, so um, the intervention, the online intervention we've developed is called Aussie, stands for Online Support and Intervention, but it, it very much is based on a, a non-online intervention that we'd previously developed, which is a parent-led cognitive behaviour therapy um, approach. So very much using the principles of cognitive behaviour therapy, which are very much about um, in order to overcome anxiety, you need to identify what the thoughts are, what your expectations and your predictions are that are leading to anxiety. And then you have to help people to have opportunities to learn new things about to help them you know, uh, have new ways of thinking mm. and uh, and by thinking differently we obviously then behave differently and and we can come to feel differently so what what we do in this approach is we support parents um to have different sorts of conversations to help parents get a really good understanding of what it is that their child's worried about and then we help parents to create plans that they can do with their children that give their children opportunities to learn new things. Mm. So setting up different tasks and experiments that they can do together, um, as well as sort of just generally building their confidence in sort of solving problems and challenges mm. that might mm. come along the way. If you could just pick a, a, a sort of example of mm. how that yeah, how that might work. Concretely, that, that, that might work. Yeah. Yourself, so um, a really common a really common thing um, can be problems at bedtime mm -hmm. with sleep, and so children feeling um, very frightened about sleeping on their own, and so you might have a child who's now coming to the end of primary school, but possibly hasn't slept on their own at all, and is very fearful for example, that something bad will happen to them in the night if their parent's not right there with them. So they might have um, got into a pattern of, of needing the parent there with them to go to sleep, waking up in the night, needing the parent there to go back to sleep. 
so sometimes that may, might mean one parent essentially just has moved in with the child uh, or it might mean parents are getting just you know interrupted sleep every night which obviously is very difficult to manage um, and uh, so in that sort of situation we'd be helping parents to have conversations where they explore what their child's worried about and it might be that they discover that the child thinks something bad's going to happen they might think something someone's going to break in in the night um, and then we would help them think about well how can you how can you put that to the test so there might be things that they can do to to put that to the test so it might be the child thinks someone's going to break in the window so there might be experiments they can do to see how real you know how much of a threat that is um, sometimes children might be worried about things like um, you know they're just worried that they're going to get very upset um, and so then it could be about like just giving them the opportunity to have a bit of time on their own but in a way that they do feel safe and comfortable and then gradually kind of increasing that so it's certainly not about sort of throwing children into difficult situations and making them um, you know experience the, the fear and um, have a terrible time but deal with it it's much more about just gradually giving children opportunities to learn new things discover things about themselves discover things about the world around them that's quite a skilled job to ask of parents in a way i mean you sort of think well parents ought to be able to do all these things but actually there is a, an awful lot of thinking and research that's gone yeah. into that and and that's why having the therapist support i think is yes. so critical so so parents uh, we, we now have this online version so parents can access lots of information but then the therapist is there generally on the phone um for a short amount of time each week who can help parents think okay right you know we break it down so it's a, a, a sort of so it's not too complicated a process and to help parents think okay so what have we learned this week what can we do uh, how can we make this fit for your child um and obviously address any problems that might arise along the way and i guess sorry this is <laughs> it's such an interesting subject but Presumably the anxiety of the child um, communicates itself to the parents. And presumably these parents are quite anxious as well. I think it may have been beforehand, I don't know, but certainly... Yeah, but you're, you're right. Having an anxious child is really anxiety-provoking. I mean, obviously we all worry about our children. And so if your child is struggling and, um, and getting distressed a lot or missing out on things like that, that is really anxiety-provoking. Um, there's, you know, there's a certain extent that anxiety does run in families however um you know many families that we work with there's no history family history of anxiety but of course there's a lot of stress that comes with the child having having anxiety um and so we've really found that parents are often you know really engaged with this process of you know being supported to manage things themselves and actually where in one trial we specifically worked with parents who told us they did also have difficulty with anxiety and they reported quite marked reductions in their own anxiety as well even though we didn't direct that directly address it um, but I guess that experience well one your child's less anxious so that removes lots of stress in your life but also that experience of um, being empowered and the confidence you can get and the control you kind of have over your world um but also i mean potentially parents may also use some of the strategies themselves so there's a number of ways that it may be may be beneficial so you say these trial trials are ongoing do you have yes. some results uh, the ones i've mentioned are all ongoing so we have run previous trials with prior to having the online version where um we find that from just about five hours of intervention from a therapist about three quarters of the children are um free of their anxiety problems at the end of mm. of the treatment so so good outcomes mm. yeah. yes 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 uh, so let's finally get round to to covid so first of all just looking at yourself in individually can you remember where you were when you first heard about the the pandemic and how, how long was it before you realized that this was something that might actually uh, you might become engaged with it yes yeah I, I can't remember where I was when I first heard about it however I did go to France in the February prior to everything kicking off and um and came back with a really bad cough and at that point people were just starting to mm -hmm. talk about it we'd had the first few cases and we'd come back on a ferry full of people coming uh, Italian ski ski holidays, ski holidays. Yes. And so, and I, it really sticks in my mind because I remember phoning, um, you know, helpline and saying, might this be COVID? And they said, well, did you go to Italy? And I said, no, but they were like, oh, well, no, it's fine then. Which of course now <laughs> with everything, everything we know, you sort of think, well, was it? Um, so I remember, yes. Yeah, so I remember um, that, that obviously towards the end of the February, it, it was definitely on my, 
radar because I had a very bad cough, which may or may not have been COVID. Who mm, knows? Mm, yeah. Mm, mm. And then, uh, when did you? Uh, when did it become apparent that this was going to be contributing to anxiety? Yeah. Children's anxiety and Yeah. Well, I mean, I think as soon as um, as soon as we were talking about lockdowns, I think that was when it became really clear that that the huge impact this was going to have on children and and families. So I guess we weren't thinking necessarily about covid itself it was it was more at that point thinking about the restrictions because for for children and and parents obviously that was a huge huge shift and i guess at that point we also didn't we didn't really know what the impact would be in terms of case numbers and um the impact on children's lives in those ways but obviously the impact of the restrictions was the potential impact was very clear uh, certainly the change to people's lives that was coming we, we of course had no idea how long it was all going to go on for and so when we set up the coast-based study um with, with my my Which colleague stands for, um, for covid19 supporting parents and children in epidemics i think it was still an epidemic at, <laughs> at that point um so which um i set up with my colleague polly wait and many members of our team here kind of just got involved very very quickly um because um it felt really important to understand the experiences of children young people and families um and i think we thought you know we set it up as a as a survey that fam- parents could take part in uh, and the idea was to track um children's mental health over time but we thought that would be quite a short period of time but uh, we've just now um last week launched a two-year the, the t- a two-year survey to follow up those families two years after we started uh the, the first survey so we really had no idea how long mm. it was going to go on for at that point uh, and how did you recruit your participants for that study yeah so it was it's um a very open study so it's not a representative population of the uk um it was it was all done very rapidly but one of the things that um we were really helped by is i lead a um ukri funded research network called emerging minds and emerging minds is all about trying to facilitate more research in child and adolescent mental health working across disciplines working across sectors um working a lot with families with relevant lived experience and because we had that network we were able to one we were able to talk to families very quickly and get lots of input on our plans so a fantastic group of parents came together very quickly and sort of we talked about the questions that we wanted to ask what what they felt were important things to address so that was great but also we were able to reach out through all of our voluntary community sector organizations that we work with who were really helpful in just sharing information about the survey because we the way that we set it up we weren't going to get a representative population you know it's an online survey there's always going to be biases and who takes part however what we did want to do was to try and just get as much diversity in that sample as we could so that ultimately we could look at within our sample you know what what are the different experiences people have and how might you be able to explain them so we were really helped by, you know, a wide network of voluntary community sector organisations sort of spreading the world word and encouraging parents to take part. And was this after schools had closed, so you, you couldn't go through schools? That's right. Yes. Yeah, yes, so we, yes. we did actually, because obviously schools was, were communicating, so we did also contact schools and ask them to send things out. Um, but schools obviously were in, it was, you know, obviously such a difficult time for them so yes yeah, so we did actually reach out through schools as well but i think we got particular reach through the voluntary community sector organizations mm, that we mm, work with mm. and yeah. so how many families did you have in this study yes with? so well the numbers have sort of built up at different times essentially we have data um from about nine thousand families oh, wow. um but not not everybody has completed the you know measures every month um and so it's a smaller number around three thousand where we have good longitudinal data that we can use um and and it will be interesting to see now with this two-year follow-up. We had um, literally launched that last week, and on day one, we had about 800 people fill in the survey um, very quickly. So that was really fantastic. Um, and obviously, more people, we hope, will continue to fill it out over this over this the coming week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so different numbers at different points of the pandemic. But it's it's a within that, there is quite a lot of... Uh, of variability in people's experiences. So some of the analyses that we've done, we've looked at, you know, how did mental health symptoms generally change over the symptom in our population? Remembering that it's not representative sample. And essentially what you see is the pattern of the of the pandemic, really, mm-hmm. you know, the restrictions and cases that um, when things were, you know, the cases were higher, restrictions were higher, we see 
increases in um, the mental health symptoms we were measuring. And then generally they drop down again and then, they, then they've gone up again. Um, we found that in the second national lockdown, things seem to peak at a higher level than they did in the first one, which def definitely fits with people's reports generally, you know, more anecdotal reports. But the really, it's, it's not a representative sample, as I said, but the really useful thing has been able to say, okay, over time then, how have the trajectories of change differed for different people? And actually we find that about, probably about two thirds of the children and young people in the surveys have been fine all the way through. So low levels of symptoms all the way through. However, there are other groups. So there's, there's a smaller group who were struggling at the beginning and have struggled all the way through. There's another group who were doing okay at the beginning, but definitely things got worse as, as time went on. And then there are also a, a some who started off with, with um, more difficulties, but actually may have seen a bit of an improvement over time. And then we're obviously then able to look at, well, who are those children? Mm. What, you know, can we tell which of the children are more at risk of a, a more difficult trajectory over time? Uh, and then should we be in this situation? Well, one, to know who might need further support now coming out of the pandemic, but also if we're ever in this situation again, we've got a better sense of, you know, who we need to be paying particular mm -hmm. attention to. I mean, I suppose you might find that there are some children who find going to school very anxiety-inducing, yeah. and so lockdown was actually a treat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it's been really interesting because actually, uh, so my colleague Polly Waite uh, led uh, with other members of the team on some qualitative interviews as mm -hmm. well with with um, young people and families and um, after the second lockdown lots of people referred to the first one as being feeling a bit like a holiday because that was in the summer um, and you know I think at the time it, it, obviously there were lots of changes people make but but compared to the second one which was in the winter and everyone had been it all been going on so long um, you know the first one maybe didn't seem so bad but also there have been studies yeah we definitely found some groups who particularly early on in the pandemic definitely found life easier and that was children who you know were prob probably find school more difficult um, and other studies have found the same so our colleagues in the department of psychiatry have been running another study called Oxwell and in that they've recently been particularly focusing on those children who seem to thrive during lockdown which is about a third of their sample and that's based on child report um, and again I think it does come down to you know maybe often for example in our study children with special educational needs that um, where they yeah may feel less comfortable in the school environment and actually what families have said is then being able to learn at their own pace and in their own ways um, having time to engage more time to engage in activities that they enjoy um, were quite positive for some children um, probably more so in the first lockdown than the second one. So that study was mostly about um, measuring the size of the problem. Yeah. Have you also gone on to do interventions? With yes. These yes, we have. Yeah. So it was very clear straight away that from what parents were telling us in response to the survey that they wanted support um, and were really concerned about uh, their children's emotional and behavioural outcomes. And it was interesting because obviously there's been a huge educational disruption, but pretty consistently concerns about the children's the sort of emotional impacts on children has has been a real priority for a lot of parents so um there are two ways that we've responded to that one is that we uh, one of the things parents were saying in the survey early on was that they wanted kind of you know very accessible support they wanted it to be from a credible source with you know professional input but they you know wanted it to be stuff they could access from home um, and they were quite interested in digital things. So we worked with a team led by Edmund Sanuga Bark at King's College London, who very rapidly worked with parents and a tech company to, to develop an app um, for offering parent support in the pandemic context. And um, that was funded, that was also funded by UKRI as our coast-based study was. And um, essentially we were able to do a really rapid trial where we um, invited co-space participants to take part in this trial where they were randomised either to get the app straight away or to get the app after a month. What was the app called? Um, the app's called Parent Positive um, and it's a really nice app that includes lots of information, general sort of advice and guidance, some really nice animations that they'd already produced which have sort of various sort of celebrities talking over them and there's also a, a, a parent exchange where parents can 
share advice, which is moderated by sort of expert parents who are trained and supported to do that. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really nice app that was very rapidly um, developed. And um, we've never recruited to a trial so quickly ever. Um, I guess partly we had this co-space population and this is what they told us they wanted. Um, but I guess it also really reflected that, yeah, the need that parents had at the time for for support. So that's, that's uh, we're just sort of um, looking you know, looking at the analyses now, the, the trial's finished, and so it's now a case of looking at the data. Um, so I'll have to watch this space for, the, for that one. Um, so that's one thing we did. The other thing that, well, another couple of things, actually. Another thing we did in terms of interventions was um, it was clear that we were seeing these, these um, pressures in terms of children and young people's mental health, and services were having to rapidly adapt to be able to deliver interventions online in in some form or other um and also services were really worried about the increase in referrals as restrictions eased which is exactly what we've seen um and so we also um applied for funding which we got from the department of health and social care through the nhr and the medical research council to do a, a randomized controlled trial of our online parent-led intervention for child anxiety so here, this is the CoCat study, and this is where we're comparing um, the parent-led online parent-led intervention to whatever child and adolescent mental health services are delivering uh, in this kind of ongoing pandemic context. Um, and that we're sort of approaching the final stages of recruitment to that study now. So, um, but it's quite a major trial, and we're working with over sixty clinical teams around the country yeah. mm -hmm. um, with really good representation, you know, around different parts of the country. So those have been our two main intervention projects, but we've also had a, another project called CoRay, which is a, a knowledge mobilisation project. This is funded by the Medical Research Council and is about making evidence, getting evidence-based messages about mental health to young people um, in the pandemic context and addressing their priorities so in that project we we've did a lot of the team did a lot of work with young people to identify what were their priorities teenagers teenagers now yeah teenagers to identify what they felt were the were their priorities and the things that they identified were early on dealing with boredom and loan boredom and um sort of lack of motivation um also uh, sort of social isolation and loneliness um uh, dealing with uncertainty and then also they they rec they identified that you know actually there are ways to get help that are out there but there are you know we face barriers ourselves and so so you know we need to help people overcome the barriers to seeking help so those are the four areas they prioritized and then we worked with lots of um research and clinical experts and reviewed the literature and then worked with some really exciting partner organizations to work with young people to produce resources evidence-based resources for young people so we've been working with a company called fully focus where young people make uh, really fantastic drama based films so they've just released a three-part drama series all about um uh, trying to embed those messages about overcoming um loneliness and social isolation and we've been working with an organization called headliners who support young people in developing their sort of journalism and multimedia skills and they've been creating blogs where they've been interviewing experts about these topics and we've also worked with colleagues at the design school at university of reading who've been making some fantastic infographics with young people and then also with bbc bite sides who've made a, some really nice one um film piece and one really nice animation uh, to address barriers to help seeking so so that's been the other mm. um mm. other strand of work and we've is it been up doing to individual young people to access those or, or are they being uh, provided to schools so they can have some discussion yeah really good kind of really good question because so far <laughs> it has been kind of up to people so bbc bite size put the things on their website so obviously there's a big reach that way fully focused have been sharing and getting a huge reach from young people through their their um, social media channels and headliners have been doing the same but we're working at the moment on um developing a um a program that where these will all be provided to schools with materials that accompany them that promote discussion and enable people to draw out the evidence-based messages from them so that's that's very much the next stage that we're working on now mm, yeah. and we very much hope that you know we very we deliberately created those resources in ways that 
met the needs that young people identified during the pandemic that were kind of amplified in the pandemic but creating the resources in ways that live beyond the the pandemic mm. and hopefully mm. still feel relevant um, you know as we as we move out of mm. it and beyond well, a lot of those problems aren't exclusive to no COVID, exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. oh very good um uh, yes, has, I mean, do you think anything that you've been doing has contributed to policy making in either education or mental health? Yeah, so we've had a lot of uh, conversations with policymakers throughout um, throughout the pandemic, and so we, uh, particularly, you know, in the sort of between the national lockdowns and just beyond, um, were producing regular reports which we shared very widely with policymakers, practitioners, voluntary community sector organisations to help influence their decision making. And we contributed to quite a lot of um, discussions with policymakers through all party parliamentary groups, um, other sessions that were run for for policymakers, and had a lot of conversations um, with Department for Education and um, contributed for the last two years have contributed to the State of the Nation report um, which is as focuses on children and young people's well-being so we've certainly been providing lots of information mm. um, I guess it's less easy to see what impact that's had on in terms of policy change but I think what what we definitely did see was um, you know a, a gradually increasing awareness of the impact on children and young people um, obviously their education but also their mental health and well-being and I think that that sort of conversation definitely grew um, as the pandemic moved on and I think now you know it's something that you a lot is written about um, and it's talked about a lot and obviously we can't evidence anything but it, it felt like we were able to contribute to getting getting that clearly on the agenda by being able to just having data that we could help um, provide um, there obviously is other data as well that can be drawn on and with and you know the, all the studies provide slightly different things I mean the problem with with the pandemic is you can't ever there's no control group you don't know what how things would have been otherwise but we can kind of try triangulate data from different sources um, and you know and, and I hope that our data has made a contribution to that and I hope that and obviously our intervention studies are all ongoing but as we get the results for those you know we obviously very much hope that there'll be interventions there that can be taken forward, you know, and not just in pandemic circumstances, but actually if it means it, it provides ways to increase access to psychological therapies and make them more flexible and easy for families to access, then that would be a great thing. Mm-hmm. And, do, and do you work with teachers at all? It just struck me that... Yes. They, although they probably haven't got time to just sit down and deliver interventions one-to-one <laughs> in the way that parents have. Yeah. Simply knowing and understanding how these things work yeah yeah no absolutely completely agree um and we do so in the icat study for example which is about identifying child anxiety through schools and improving access to interventions there we we screen for anxiety in children and the main intervention is supporting parents but we actually also go in and do a, a lesson for the whole class about anxiety which and we provide um, information to teachers or, or, so we provide resources they can use but also information so that they can act, you know respond to children in consistent ways with the work that we're doing with parents so we are doing that but actually um, one of my um, team Helen Manley is uh, ex primary school teacher who's now doing a DPhil here and her focus is actually very much about picking up on your point that teachers don't necessarily have the time to deliver an intervention and you know and and maybe that's not what they're there for however they are interacting with children all the time so are there things that teachers could do in just how they manage their classes generally that exactly that might um, help you know might help minimize the impact of anxiety for children help children who might be prone to struggling with anxiety so she's been doing some fantastic work she's done a systematic review she's been interviewing lots of parents teachers and children and the next stage is developing a training intervention for teachers all, all about that so it will address exactly the issue you raised mm, mm, mm. Very interesting. Um, so yes and one of the things, a number of the researchers that I've interviewed have said that being uh, thrust into suddenly doing very important things very quickly uh, meant that they had to work in a much more collaborative way with colleagues from other teams than they had done previously. And in some cases, what a revelation that was right. compared with the slightly competitive way that particularly people in more pure sciences 
um, tend to tend to do, where you're you know constantly running to get the next paper out, and yes. get the next conference presentation. Is that does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean I think we I hope that we were working in quite a collaborative way already. Yeah. So I mentioned the Emerging Minds Network, which is mm. all about you know building a network helping people to work together um but we've certainly been um we've tried to be really collaborative and and mostly by just being very open about what we're doing so with the co-space study um we made we um you know obviously the protocol was available so people could see what we were doing but also we made all of the our whole survey available to anyone who wanted it and actually so we ended up sharing the survey and the sort of the script for the the actual the software that delivers it available to um, collaborators from all around the world. So I think there are about thirty different co-space studies going on, which uh, we're not running. We just sort of said, well, this is what we're doing. Use it if you like. And actually, now we're just um, in a couple of weeks going to be meeting with many of those groups to think to learn. No, <laughs> sadly not. Um, but uh, but uh, all on all online. But um, to to you know to share on what we've all learned mm. from collecting that same data and and certainly it was really important to us to to try to minimize us all doing things a bit differently but yeah. actually if we can do things so that we can pool our data pool our learning compare our findings then that's definitely preferable so so that was one thing that we did to really try and promote that collaboration and um and so that's ongoing and actually it has led to a recent grant led by my colleague um simona um who which is a collaborative grant with japanese colleagues Mm -hmm. who um, have been collecting data during the pandemic and now um, we've got this grant together where um we'll be we're all we're they and us are following everybody up at this two-year mark and, and again over the next year and also bringing young people together for discussions about the different experiences in Japan and the UK and what we can learn from that. So mm. that's been a really nice example mm. of a collaboration mm. that's come from it. So are you finding that uh, pretty much um, that the, uh, the, the increase in anxiety, that the increases in anxiety that you saw are repeated internationally you're getting similar results yeah well so interestingly actually in our study it's not anxiety specifically where we've tended to see the the main changes in in children in in our study because we have a lot of children primary school age actually it's been uh, more the sort of behavioral difficulties that have been more marked um which makes sense given children were really cooped up and yes yes. yeah (laughs) so um those were more marked than the sort of emotional the emotional symptoms um amongst our sample um and that's something that's varied from study to study so we haven't really been able to pull these different co-space studies but where but but studies generally have varied on that and i think it depends on the specific age of the sample it very much depends on the timing when the data you know when data was collected so uh, you know at some points in the pandemic as we were talking about before you know sometimes there might have been slight reductions but then at other times there have been increases mm-hmm. and also it depends on the the demographic characteristics of the participants because you know we've definitely seen these very clear differences depending on people's circumstances so where children with um, special educational needs children with um, where they're living in low family incomes um, then in those situations we see much higher levels of problems mm. throughout so so it, yeah so it's quite messy trying to pull the data together yeah, across these different places yeah. Yeah. Yes. but again in some ways it's a very rational response well, rational isn't perhaps a but understandable yes. response in yeah. the children because of course i mean it's just it's just a kind of given of a parenting that children need to let off steam yeah, and if that's they can't right. let off steam it's yeah that's right and they couldn't get you know some children had gardens not all children had gardens mm. in many cases and did you collect that we did yes, yes and we yes. haven't done a lot with that yet so there's a yeah. lot there's so much there and we've just made the data available um from the first year the data available open access on the uk data service so because there is so much we're just hoping other people will also mm, go in mm. and analyze it and ask interesting questions because there's a huge amount of data there um but um did you also collect histories i mean like early early trauma of any no kind. um yeah. not really i mean the whole it's always a very pragmatic decision you know mm. of what you know you can't ask too many questions no. so try to narrow it down so we did ask questions about whether there were pre-existing mental health problems mm. and neurodevelopmental problems but n- not much else in terms of of past histories mm. but yeah huge amount still to 
to look at and yeah certainly those sort of environment you know the amount of space whether there was gardens you know the demands other demands on parents all of those things will have obviously made huge differences mm. to people's experiences mm, mm, mm. i'm just going to turn a little bit more to for personally to you uh, so how did the lockdown itself impact on what you were able to do how did you change how you work yeah so well we we were quite lucky because probably about two weeks before the pandemic hit us um kaya who's a wonderful administrator in our team did a session for our whole team about microsoft teams which none of us had ever used before and it was funny because she did the presentation and i thought oh i can't be bothered to learn anything and then of course it got forced on us so and uh, luckily my team really embraced using technology and uh, many of these studies we've spoken about you know got started during the pandemic so we had staff who have never been in to the office so I think we've worked really well and um, have definitely moved you know moved our ways of working forward a lot by really embracing technology um, and um, yeah and so I think we, we were able to work quite effectively because we could do do a lot remotely um, and you know luckily having reasonable wi-fi at home and personally my children are teenagers so they didn't really want me hanging around all the time anyway mm -hmm. so I could and it so it meant I could actually work a lot but still be around in a way that um you know I wouldn't want to work that much if I was out out the house all the time mm -hmm. um yeah but they were being homeschooled were being homeschooled they were having to study at home yes yes, yes, yes. In so theory. you were living through <laughs> what you were studying at the yes. same time yeah yes. well although one of mine was GCSE year so his GCSEs were obviously cancelled and then they had nothing nothing to do um work school work wise so yeah we Which were living that as well <laughs> yeah yeah yes yes and I suppose because you suspected you might have had COVID so very early on the threat of it the threat of infection I don't know but did you feel under threat Personally. Yeah, I don't think we did because um, none of us, you know, in my household, none of us are clinically vulnerable, and um, the you know the messages about the risk of children were you know were quite low, and um, you know my husband and I didn't have any particular vulnerabilities, so I think we didn't really feel that you know we didn't feel worried about um, getting COVID particularly. It, the worry was always more about passing it on to others yes. uh, for us and actually that's what we saw in the coast-based study as well when we ask about what children were worried about. Um, it was it was typically not, well it was typically about other people yes. get other people getting it. Um, grandparents? Yes that, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, yes I, sorry I think I missed all that out sorry we need to go back to that. So what yes apart from Yes, you, you talked about loneliness and, and isolation and that kind yeah. of thing, but what, what were the specifically COVID-related things that people were worried about? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely uh, there was a worry about catching COVID, but particularly amongst children, particularly a worried worry about um, other people, you know, other people catching it. And, I, it, you know, the messaging was quite frightening, wasn't it, about older people and grandparents and so on. Um, and so that was definitely a worry. Um Parents were worried about yeah children's the emotional impact it would have on them. They were worried about their children's education. It was quite it was quite interesting, and I guess it reflects the population we're working with, which are um, you know not generally at ages that were particularly vulnerable. That they were more worried about the impacts or the wider impacts than the threat of COVID to themselves. And. Um, uh, I mean, what about your your wider team? Did did they did you feel they needed additional support? I mean, was, were there were the levels of anxiety among your team yeah. um, different? Well, I mean, I think our team were absolutely amazing at just um, you know reacting in a very productive way. So, for example, the coast based study we launched very quickly. First of all, we didn't have any funding initially, but a number of people were just interested and just got involved and just took it on on top of their normal stuff. So I think a lot of people's response was just to get very busy. Um, obviously, we had to suddenly find lots of, you know, laptops and things that, you know, and buy things that we didn't have so that people were able to work from home. And I think, you know, initially and probably for too long for some people there were not really ideal situations of you know for working at home I mean I think with you know within our team as it would be for anyone people's circumstances vary so dramatically and that makes such a difference to you know the impact that the pandemic had so you know whether people have young children versus teenagers like me with teenagers for me personally it, it wasn't 
you know they 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 you know they're able to be quite independent in lots of ways whereas i think if you've got young children and you're trying to work it was obviously hugely hugely stressful and demanding i think equally you know some people in the team may you know live on their own and be at those early stages of becoming kind of living independently like that and that's obviously hugely challenging so i think people's yes individual circumstances like like anywhere um hugely dictated the, the experience that they had mm-hmm. and and did were they able to talk about those different fears and worries and I, I, th- I think so yeah. I, yes I, I think so um I mean I'm sure you know I'm probably not aware of of everything that mm. uh, that everybody experienced but certainly I mean I think the university were very I mean the universities allowed people to um uh, you know like um with people caring responsibilities to basically reduce their, their working hours and things mm. like that which are, were really really important mm-hmm. um to reduce relieve the some of the pressure from parents for example um and um, I think certainly within our department, there was a lot of very helpful messaging that was very, you know, normalising the trickiness of it and trying to encourage people to seek seek help that they might need and mm-hmm. to reach out to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also do, I mean, I think I'm really lucky to have a very supportive team where people were, so people quite rapidly set up um you know regular coffee online coffee sessions so that people would always know there was a a point to check in with people um which i think also Mm, you know mm. was just helpful just making sure people were connected as much as possible yes 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 so so do you think the fact that you had all you know that that this you did as i said you say pivot to becoming very busy yeah do you think that was you know again people have been on a spectrum between saying i was so busy i was just exhausted all the time to saying working on something even though I was working very hard because I knew it was important it was really supportive of my well-being where, yeah. where would you put yourself on that yeah spectrum? I mean I think probably at different places at different points in the pandemic yes. I think that uh, initially definitely it felt um you know it was it felt good to be able to do something that felt useful uh, definitely um and I'm really glad that we've been able to contribute um but I think, yes, we definitely didn't realise how long it would go on, as we, we were saying before. Mm. And so, and it's just not sustainable to really go at that pelt. Um, but I think what most people are finding is things aren't, the pressure's not necessarily relieving now as we come out of it. So I think we all do need to think a bit about the, the habits that we've got into over the last two years and start to make some adjustments mm. um, because yeah, you know, it, it is exhausting and you can't sustain that um, for for forever yeah i mean do you think the remote working for instance has been something that you can learn from as as an an option definitely more flexible way of approaching yeah definitely and actually we've been talking about this a lot as a team and um most people if not everybody are now we've now sort of organized that arrangements for sort of flexible working arrangements where people will work from home a bit and in the office a bit some people almost entirely from home um but most people a bit in and a bit out. And um, I mean, personally, I think that for me, that works really well. Mm. I, I really like working that way. Mm, mm. Um, and it's definitely a shift from how we were working before. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the whole country, has le- the world probably has learned yeah. that you don't, you don't have to, you know, the presenteeism, it's not necessary, you don't have to see the person there to know no. that they're working. And, you know, we do have, like, within our team, some of the project teams, you know, have never, they, you know, they started. Um, the COCAT trial, which I mentioned, that started quite far into the pandemic. We recruited new staff. Um, you know, some of them have never been in a room together, but they work really well together and uh, feel like they know each other really well mm-hmm. because they're communicating all day long, um, just not physically in the same place. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, so has the work that you did specifically on COVID raised new questions that you're interested in exploring in the future? I, I mean, I think that the... Um, well, so the the coast based study, I don't mean there's there's huge amounts in there still to delve into. I think the thing that it's really highlighted is is the role of inequalities, um, and and just that we've seen, you know, that there are groups there who are uh, who've been particularly vulnerable all the way through, um, and you know, for example, fam- families living on very low incomes, it, that's a major, you know, such a major risk factor, and that was known before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic is really sort of highlighted some of these things um and i think that's really you know made that become a more prominent focus of our not a focus of our work but i think it means that in all of our work we need to make sure that we are um including families um you know from sort of broad 
broad spectrum of backgrounds and circumstances so that we're not yeah, that we're not excluding any groups who might particularly benefit and might have particular needs. So that's definitely been highlighted. I mean, I think one of the things, the, the digital intervention work that we're doing has definitely accelerated in pace um, because, you know, people have just been forced to use technology. And so whereas it may have been slow, people might have been a bit reluctant, people have just had to embrace it. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously a silver lining from an otherwise very difficult time. Um, and I really, and I think... You know, we, we want to really keep pushing at that now because for families, um, you know, for parents who are busy and working, have children, etc., actually there's huge advantages to be able to um, work in those kind of ways rather than have to take the whole day off work to drive your child an hour to an appointment, sit there for an hour, drive home, etc. So we can do a lot to increase access to good interventions through digital means. And so that's that's definitely one thing that I hope will really keep moving forwards at pace now mm, mm. i mean it sounds it sounds like something that really needs to be adopted mm. <laughs> across the country yes uh, and so how, how far do you think you've got are you if you've still got to wait for your results to come out before you can start persuading the department of health and social services to yeah so we've got because we've got we've got We've got some initial findings that look really, really promising, but we do need to wait for the results from the trials. But we, it, it's a slightly tricky situation because we have to wait for the results from the trials. But in the meantime, the clinical teams we're working with are saying, can we please keep using this? Yes. Um, yeah. And because, you know, they've got on well with it and uh, and it, it seems to have worked well from their perspective. So we do need to find a mechanism to, to keep going with it and mm. to keep rolling it out. So we've got some plans for some interim solutions, but, but yeah, we do need to be pushing forward so really uh, developing our plans for how we roll this out at scale. Mm -hmm. now, this might be slightly repetitious, but has the experience um, of the pandemic changed your attitude or your approach to your work in any way? Um, oh, I don't know if I've got anything else to say that, yeah, that we haven't spoken about before. Um, Hmm, can't think of anything further. No. <laughs> okay. Are there any, um, I should have asked this earlier really, but I don't know, are there any comments from parents or children that you've come across in the course of your work that really stick in your mind, that, that illustrate the kind of thing you're trying to do? Oh, I'm trying to think, on, on, I think now on the spot for... Yeah, no, I just wondered whether there yeah. might be something that you, you're always, you know, when you talk to people uh, socially, you think, oh, you you know, a child said this thing, but if, if there isn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah, nothing's jumped, jumped, something will probably jump to my mind in five yes, minutes. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's lovely. Thank you. Very yeah, much. no, well, nice talking to you.